0: Security. Everyone is looking for security. I think lots of people are searching for security, whether it be physical security and install alarms and security personnel at our work, or uh, it is in terms of health security, where we try to pop pills and do whatever it takes to stay healthy, whether it is financial security, where we guard and plan and organize against those uh, days that uh, could be challenging in the future. In fact, that's why many financial institutions call what they sell securities. And you see how the drug manufacturers and the investment firms and the alarm manufacturers, they all team up with marketers to convince us that we can be physically secure if we buy their alarm system, or health-wise we can be secure if we pop their pills, or that we can be financially secure if we invest with them. Here's a statement I don't want you to miss. There is nothing wrong with that. In fact, a wise person must think and plan and guard against recklessness and carelessness. I believe that with all my heart. The problem arises when our need for security, whatever it may be, turn into a life of worry and anxiety and fear about these securities. When the securities we seek turns into a fearful obsession, that is where we need to stop and take account of our lives. Please think with me, okay? Okay. All of this concern about our security, whether it be physical or health or financial, all of these have to do with this life, right? It's to do with this life, whether it be short or long. It doesn't matter. It's all the concerns here. And yet, there are believers in the church of Jesus Christ who have that same worry and anxiety and doubt and they take it into their eternal security. In the last message, we saw how in 2 Peter 1, 1 1-4, that he was telling us that God's salvation is permanent, that God's grace is permanent, that God's gifts are permanent, that God's promises are permanent, that the righteousness of Christ that He gives us is permanent. We saw how when we come to Christ, confessing Him to be the only Savior and Lord of our life. At that moment, He gives us all things. How many? All. Pertaining to life and godliness. From Second Peter, I'm calling it deliberately, it is never too late. As long as you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter where you are, you can never say to yourself, well, it's too late for me. And the reason for that is because Christ's righteousness that is imputed upon us, that was given to us, it's permanent, day in and day out. It is permanent, whether you are emotionally up or emotionally down, whether you feel encouraged or discouraged, whether you are at the very center of the will of God or maybe wandered off somewhere. It is permanent. The problem arises when we either deliberately or just ignorantly forget that this permanent endowment of the righteousness of Jesus Christ is permanent. The result of that, either ignoring or forgetting that the believer has the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not his own, not her own, then we get to the point where we begin to doubt, am I really eternally secure in Christ or not? This doubt can be magnified. It gets blown out of all proportion in the times of trials, in the times when you're going through a tough time, in the times when you're experiencing horrendous circumstances. That doubt begins to be magnified. I want to give you five reasons as to why believers tend to doubt their eternal security in Christ. The first group of people, they were people who grew up in a church or the type of Christianity, is what I call performance Christianity. If they perform, they feel saved. When they're not performing, they feel not saved. If they blow it, feel that God turned His back on them. God is no longer loving them. They're not sure if they are saved. They were never taught that when they repented of their sins and received Jesus Christ as their only Savior and Lord, that their names are written in the book of life, not with a pencil, but by the blood of Jesus Christ Himself. That it is permanently there. The second group of folks Tend to doubt their eternal security in in Christ because they cannot remember the exact day or the exact hour or the exact moment they have given their life to Christ. And so they are unsure of their salvation. But listen to me, it doesn't matter. The issue is not whether you prayed the prayer or the signed the decision card or whether you've done this or done that. The issue is, are you walking with Christ now? Amen. The third group are constantly feeling the battering of the flesh. You know what I'm talking about. Because they're constantly feeling the battling of the flesh inside of them and unable to stand up and have victory over temptations. They're up sometimes, they're down other times. They cannot be sure if they become a new creation in Christ and they begin to doubt their eternal security. I want to submit to you, listen to me carefully, please. As long as you feel the power of the flesh warring against your spirit, as long as you abhor sin and the power of sin in your life, these are indications that you are saved, not the other way around. The evidence that you are grieving every time you fall for sin, that you are grieving and turning to the Lord in confession and repentance, that should make you feel secure about your salvation instead of the other way around. Then there's still other group who doubt the assurance of their eternal security in Christ when they cannot see the hand of God working in their life, particularly in the times of trials— in the times of difficulties, in the times uh, when they're really facing some horrendous circumstances in their life, they wonder if they are saved or not. This is how the enemy works. He will show up and he say, are you sure? Or how can you be sure that you are eternally son of God, the daughter of God, How can you be sure when you're experiencing such horrendous suffering? How can you believe that God loves you eternally and that His love is everlasting love when you're going through these horrendous circumstances? And he keeps on hammering away. How come? How come? How come? Some of these folks begin to lose their confidence and the assurance that they are truly, and for all of eternity, are loved and saved by the Lord. Himirat, right, please. Even those trials, even those tough and difficult situations, they are a clear indication that you are eternally loved by the Lord. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 5, 3, 4, and 5. Let me read it to you. We also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance proves characters, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Amen. And then, of course, in the times when God shows up and answers our prayer and delivers us from whatever circumstances we're in, we can rejoice. On our eternal security in Him. But there's a final group, final group. Those who lack the assurance of eternal security because they are not walking in obedience with the Lord. Let me repeat this. There are those who feel that they do not have this eternal security of their salvation because they're not walking in obedience. They are willfully and deliberately take the grace of God for granted. That's what the Bible calls a sin of presumption. And a lot of evangelical pastors preaching that is called hyper-grace. Take the grace for granted. Walk in the flesh all you want. But Paul says in Galatians 5.16, he said, those who walk in the flesh fulfill its desire. Now, these folks don't understand that walking in obedience and the assurance of eternal security go hand in hand. I promised I'm going to share my testimony. I'm going to testify to you. Some of you are probably saying, Michael is reading my mail. He's reading my email. No, I read my own mail. (laughs) Because there was a time after I gave my life to Christ, I fell for every one of those five errors. I did. All of these erroneous teachings caused me a total insecurity in my salvation. I was taught the vital importance of performance for earning my salvation. Oh yes, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but I have to do my… I have to earn it. (laughs) I was taught also to interpret the trials in life and difficulties in life is an indication that I may not be saved. And beloved, listen to me. I lived a miserable Christian life. I lacked joy. I lacked peace. I lacked assurance. But then, through some wonderful, godly teachers, began to open the Scripture and brought me face to face with the biblical truth that God's salvation is permanent, God's grace is permanent, God's power is permanent, God's promises are permanent. God's assurance of my salvation is permanent. I cannot describe to you the joy that filled my heart at that time, those many years ago, the peace that engulfed my life that moment, the longing desire on my part that began to grow every single day since then of loving and living for Christ, the gratitude of my heart and thankfulness that His righteousness, not mine, that covered Me from head to toe, that his righteousness filled my life with praise and thanksgiving. That genuine longing began to rise inside of me that I want to be obedient to him every single day of my life until I see him face to face. That powerful hope of waiting patiently when things go wrong, when circumstances are hard, waiting for His perfect timing, the joyful anticipation of His mercy in His timing. That was a transformation for me. I know this may be old hat for some of you, but to me that's almost equal to my salvation. The day of coming to Christ, the joy of knowing this truth right second to that day. Now, beloved, this assurance of salvation caused me to want to grow moment by moment, day by day. I want to grow. I want to grow in leaps and bounds. I began to devour the Scripture in my walking with God and intimacy with God and not to live in that fear and terror and doubt. And here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 11, I hope you got it in front of you, opened, he is telling us that this blessed assurance That this eternal security in Christ helps us to build an edifice of faith in every one of our lives. Verse 5, for this very reason, what reason is that? The assurance of our eternal security in Christ. For that reason, the fact that we are assured eternally that we can rest on the work of Christ in us, For that reason, we build this seven-story edifice in our lives, a story of faith in our lives. That building represents our growing in Christ, our growing in obedience to Christ, growing in walking with Christ, our maturing in Christ, growing into the likeness of Christ. Now, before I get to that building, I know those of you who are builders— You know that a strong building, an enduring building, a permanent building, an eternal building, have to have an absolutely, positively strong, immovable foundation. That foundation is our permanent salvation as a gift of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That foundation is the assurance that we are eternally secure in Christ. That foundation is that God is the one who gave us that gift of salvation that we could never, ever, ever, ever earn in 20 lifetimes. That gift of righteousness is from His hand. Only then can we start building those seven-story buildings. Faith in Christ, the gift of God that He's given us, that's the foundation. So what is the first floor? Look at verse 5 again. He said the first floor is virtue. Because of the blessings of the magnificent, precious promises that God has given us who believe, because we have received everything. How many? Everything. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Therefore, we can start building this building with His power and strength, not on our own. For this reason... We respond by making our first floor in the Christian life, which directly above the foundation, virtue. Virtue means moral excellence. What does moral excellence mean? Listen to me very carefully, please. It means that your yea be yea, and your nay be nay. Moral excellence means that you are faithful to your spouse. Moral excellence means that you do not take your employer's time to do your own thing. It means that you do not dock your report to make yourself look good and get credit that doesn't belong to you. Uh, Moral excellence means, young students, that you are to obey your parents, whether you agree with them or not. The Bible said obey your parents because that's right. It is right. Most moral excellence... Is the strength and the power to say no when it is so easy to say yes. Abraham was not virtuous when he said, Sarah is only my sister. Moses was not virtuous when he whacked that rock instead of speaking to it as God told him to. David was not virtuous when he took another man's wife into his arms. Peter, was not virtuous when he denied Jesus three times. But thank God that God can not only forgive us, but strengthen us to exercise moral excellence. Amen? Amen. Virtue means that you're not double-minded. Virtue means that you dig your heels and you refuse to compromise your biblical convictions regardless of the cost. Virtue means that you serve God's purpose in your life, not what you want. And so that's the first floor, is virtue. The second floor is knowledge. Knowledge does not mean just knowing things in your head. Many Christians get a lot of biblical facts in their head uh, about Christian faith. They get a lot of head knowledge. Many use their Bible and get some information and facts, but here knowledge means learning and growing in our relationships. You see, that's why we have all these home groups and Bible study groups, small groups all over the place. Why? Because you cannot exercise knowledge of the Word of God without applying it in relationships. Knowledge here is what you learn through practice. This is the same Peter who's in 1 Peter chapter 3 Verse 7 said to husbands to live with their wives according to knowledge. It's the same word here. It means for the husband to live with his wife according to knowledge is to study her and to know what turns her on, what turns her off, to know what causes her pain and what causes her joy. And so knowledge of God's Word is not merely head knowledge, uh, but it is internalized knowledge and applied knowledge. Then there is the third floor in this godly life building, and it's self-control. Self-control in our culture today is a foreign word. It's a foreign language, particularly among the young. I mean, it is a forgotten word. When we live for instant gratification and self-indulgence, there are some preachers in the evangelical world today who say your happiness and God's glory are equal to each other. Self-control. You cannot grow into the full stature of Christ. You cannot grow into Christ-likeness without self-control. It will be like a building, seven-story building that's lacking the third floor. It will cave on itself. Beloved discipline in our prayer life, discipline in our spending unhurried time with God in intimacy with the Lord, discipline in getting into the Word of God and applying it in our lives, discipline in the use of our time, and discipline in the use of our money, and discipline in sacrificially giving to the work of God, discipline in curbing all of our appetites. If this self-control is missing, The third floor of a seven-story building is unstable. And the Apostle Paul, my goodness, he worked as hard as anybody in that area in his life. Self-control. And that's why he says, I've learned. I've learned. He didn't just all of a sudden develop expertise on discipline and self-control. No, 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 no. He said, I have learned. (laughs) He went through the pain of learning, experiencing what it means. To discipline, so much so that he would say in First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 26, I do not run aimlessly, I don't shut a box, I don't beat the air, but I plummet my body and subdue it. Why? Here's what he said, lest after preaching to others I myself should stand aside. What does it mean? He's saying that after all my work in ministry, I lose my reward. Beloved, I don't mind telling you it's not a secret. In this fourth quarter, in the game of life and ministry, this is my deepest concern for me. And if the Lord lays it on your heart, He can pray for me, that I will run the race faithfully, lest after I preach to others, should stand aside. And I pray that for you, every one of you. The fourth floor in this seven-story building is perseverance. (laughs) That's another word (laughs) that we don't use very often, and yet that's one thing we need to teach our children and grandchildren, the word perseverance, the experience of perseverance. You see, Perseverance here means more than just passive patience. It is the joyful acceptance of tough situations. It is to be steady under pressure. It is to be courageous and accept whatever life throws at you. Listen, I know some of you going through a tough time. I know some of you going through some testing time right now but I want you to remember this. God is standing with you. He is upholding you. His everlasting arms are underneath you. God's Spirit is comforting you, because His name is Paraclete, the Comforter. Above all, remember that God will reward your perseverance. I know the temptation of wanting to quit… I know the temptation of saying, "Well, it's too late for me." I was in my late thirties when I thought, "Oh, it's too late for me." I know the temptation of taking the easy way out. Funny, I was thinking about this, and and I thought about the time when I was after I was ordained in Sydney, and I was working as uh, a youth pastor. Now, my kids don't believe that because they think I was born old, but I, I actually was young once, and uh, I was a youth pastor. And uh, I remember I made a decision, I'm going to visit every one of those youth in my group. I heard about how D.L. Moody's teacher went and visited every one of them, and I want to visit every one of them. One guy particularly, every time I visit him, I remember a plaque that he had on the wall of his room, and it went like this, it said, when I get the urge to study, I lie in bed until it goes away. Beloved, Peter is saying perseverance or standing under pressure might not be popular, it might not be cool, but you do it because you know it pleases the Lord and it brings you blessing. The fifth floor in the seven-story building is godliness. That means utter reverence for God. We lost reverence for authority. We lost reverence for those in authority because we have lost reverence for God true spiritual worship of God, truly honoring and adoring the Lord in our lives and our practice, it means that you are so much in love with Jesus (laughs) that you love Him, and that your love for Him influences every decision and every aspect of my life. In other words, when people look at you, they see the family resemblance. They recognize that you belong to your Father in heaven. In First Timothy chapter four, Paul tells Timothy that he should make reverence for the Lord to be his highest priority. Why? Because of its eternal value. Its eternal value. Now I come to the sixth and the seventh floors in that seven-story building. Together the, the sixth and the seventh really sort of kind of share the penthouse somewhat. Because the two are very similar. They really kind of go hand in hand, but and they look alike, but they are different. They are different. That's why Peter separates them. These two, six and seven, look alike, but they really not they are different. I want you to hear me right on this one. Brotherly affection is what we exercise toward one another as believers. But divine love is what God produces in us to the point of willing to die for the brethren. Divine love is what God wants to produce between husbands and wives. Divine love is what God wants to create in us for believers to love each other. So much so that the whole world can see this type of love and they want to believe. So the sixth and the seventh story in that penthouse (laughs) were so important to Peter. I'm going to show you why. You see, nothing here by chance. They were so important to him that the move from the sixth to the seventh transformed his life, changed his life. Because Peter, as we have seen when I mentioned in the last message, he was filled with matcha talk. He was filled with bravado. In the past, he was filled with self-adequacy. Count on me. Nothing going to happen to you. I, 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 and me. <laughs> but when the air turned blue at his denial of his beloved Jesus, three times, he became a broken man, and he wept. But listen to me. Being broken is not enough. I've seen a lot of people who are broken, and they went back to their normal life. Being broken is not enough. Peter knows that experientially, because after his brokenness, and after his hot tears, and even after the resurrection, he took things into his hands, and he said to the boys, (laughs) the disciples, (laughs) I'm going fishing. And they followed him until Jesus confronted him. Read about this in the last two chapters in the Gospel of John. Read about it. Jesus confronted him, and here's how he did it. Mr. adequate, Peter, do you agape me? Imagine what the old Peter would have said. Of course, I love you, Lord. Agape. No, this is a new Peter. He couldn't say that. He said, Lord, I love you with brotherly affection. The Lord wanted to take Peter from the sixth to the seventh floor, and he asked him again, Peter, do you agape me? Lord, I love you, with human affection. And so Jesus does it a third time. Peter, do you even love me with brotherly affection? I have no doubt that there was a lump in his throat and tears in his eyes when he said, Lord, you know everything. You know everything. I can't fake it anymore. At this moment, Peter began to rise from the sixth floor to the seventh floor. And beloved, listen to me. This became the key for Peter's greatness. This became the key of Peter's fruitfulness. This has become the key to Peter's effectiveness. Effectiveness. Peter recognized for the first time that he could not do what he wanted to do, but only Christ can do in him and through him what needs to be done. Amen? I want to tell you this as I conclude. Far from wanting his children to live in doubt and joyless life about the gift of salvation, God wants us to delight ourselves. He wants us to have the joy of the confidence of that blessed assurance. Verse 8, from that confidence and joy will come fruitfulness. It will come bearing fruit. Ask yourself the question, am I fruitful in my Christian life? What fruit am I bearing? Verses 10 and 11, He tells us, about the benefits and the blessings of having these seven-story buildings as our edifice of faith. Each one of us. This is not for preachers. It's for every one of us. And it is this, that you will only become fruitful in your Christian life when you build that edifice on the permanent foundation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But that's not all. When you build this building, as you build it, you will live. Not that you're not going to have problems, you're going to have problems. Problems are part of life, but you're going to live above the problems. That you're going to live victorious, even when all the arrows are aiming at you. That you will live not in scarcity, but in abundance. That you will live not in confusion. But joy, you will live in confidence, knowing that He who began a good work in you is able to bring it to completion. Amen? Amen. 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 Give God glory. Give God glory. There may be someone here today who says, I have never really experienced that. I've never come to the point of recognizing that I'm a sinner, I desperately need His salvation. He's holding that hand open for you. Will you come to Him? Let's pray together. And wherever you are, let this be a moment of decision. Let this be a time when you say, Lord God, I don't want to just hear another message and walk out and live the way I lived. I want this to be a transforming power of the Word of God working in me. Father God, the great news is that You're omnipresent and omniscient. You know every heart. You know every person. You know every circumstance. You know every situation. Holy Spirit, I pray in the name of the matchless name of Jesus that you would come and visit every heart right now and that you bring conviction to those who need to be convicted, that you bring assurance to those who are in doubt, that you bring comfort to those who are struggling. Above all, Holy Spirit, Do your work in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.